1975, a 15-year-old boy travels to Jamaica for a benefit concert with his mom. We go to the biggest stadium in Jamaica. We have literally front row seats. Where he discovers a little-known local reggae star. Bob Marley took center stage, dreadlocks flowing, the hometown crowd going, that shit. And I remember thinking, what is this? The concert changes his life and career forever. This is what your podcast's all about. It was that moment where it struck me. It's like a lightning bolt. I literally could feel it, and I have been feeling it ever since. Hey, welcome to the second episode of Sonic Impact. Woo woo! All right, we made it to the second episode. Yeah. I'm still on a total high, Olivia. I don't know about you, about from last episode with Joel Gallen talking about his experience with Paul McCartney. Definitely. That was one of the most amazing stories I've heard in my whole life. It really is. And that's what this podcast is all about today. It's Bob Marley. We're going to get to that in a few minutes. But before we do, it's always great to start out about current sonic impacts, things that we are currently hearing, things that we like, and things we're doing. So you had an amazing sonic impact recently. I did. I went to Coachella a couple weeks ago, and it was just everything I could have dreamed of and more. It was three straight days of incredible performance performances, back-to-back, just phenomenal artists, phenomenal performances, just a dream come true. How many artists do you think you saw over the three days? Probably 20. 20. And you love Billie Eilish. That's like maybe your top artist right now. Yes. And I got to be seventh row for her. Whoa. Seventh row. Honor. You've seen her before. What was so incredible about this one? I think something that's really special about Coachella is that it's a kind of a big deal for a lot of these artists. It's one of the bigger music festivals. So they go all out. And Billie's performance was just spectacular. I saw her on tour recently, but it was different. And she brought out the lead singer of Paramore. Very cool. And Harry Styles brought out Lizzo, which was also insane (laughs) to witness. I saw him last fall. And if you haven't seen Harry Styles, he's one of the best performers right now around. His music's incredible, but the way he has the crowd in the palm of his hands. He just has the time of his life up there, and it's impossible to not have the time of your life watching him. Who else other than Harry and Billy did you feel like was really stood out? I'd have to say Doja Cat. I was just starting to kind of become a fan of her before Coachella, but now I'm over the moon obsessed. She put on a full-on production, backup dancers, crazy visuals, changed her outfit six times, And I just felt so inspired after watching that show because this is a girl who started years ago on SoundCloud who was trying to make it forever. She's just so herself and she's so confident and it's really inspiring to see someone up on a stage who just owns it. Very real. So authentic, but also you look at her and she's putting on this insane production, but you know she's just like a very genuine, down-to-earth person, so it was just amazing. This is one of the many reasons why I have Olivia join me on this podcast, because she's so into music and she's hearing all the current artists and going to concerts, so she'll fill us all in on what's really worth listening. So, anything else about Coachella? A couple artists that you think people should hear? Yes, I recommend checking out Girl in Red, Holly Humberstone, Conan Gray, and Billy's brother, Phineas. Wow. See, you get recommendations on the show as well as these great stories. And then we are connecting on music this week. We're going to see our favorite artist, Paul McCartney, at SoFi in a few days, and we're both like through the roof. We went when you were seven, and now we're going when you're 20, and we weren't sure Paul was going to be touring all those years, but here we are. He's almost 80, and he plays like a two-hour and 45-minute set, and I just hear there's an incredible surprise. I'm not going to give it away to you. but. We're thrilled. 
So today's episode, we're going to go way back in time, though, to 1975. It's Bob Marley and the sonic impact he had on a young Doug Herzog. And Olivia, you didn't know a lot about Bob Marley, right? Yeah, not really at all. I knew his most popular songs and what he looked like, but that's pretty much the extent. So one of the things Olivia is going to bring every week is some info on the artist at this moment when our story takes place. So Olivia, what did you find out about Bob Marley? So in 1975, Bob Marley was on the rise. He and his band, The Whalers, actually got their big break in 72 when they landed a contract with Island Records. And after that, the band released two albums that gained a lot of popularity in Jamaica, which were Catch a Fire and Burnin'. Over in the States, he and his band were not super popular, but Eric Clapton did a cover of I Shot the Sheriff in 1974, which gained a lot of popularity, but people probably didn't even know who that was by originally. And before their third album, which is called Natty Dread, that came out in 1975, two of the three of the original Whalers left the group to pursue solo careers, and this concert that we're about to talk about was their last performance ever together. So we now know where Bob Marlowe is. And like you said, in the States, he wasn't big. Legend that came out in 1984 after his death was the album that sort of put him in a massive sort of superstardom. But at this point in Jamaica, he was huge, just not in the States. So our guest is Doug Herzog. He's one of the most influential and important executives in the TV business. He was a producer and top executive at MTV Networks for 25 years, including Comedy Central and MTV. He even put The Real World, Amy Schumer, The Daily Show, among many others on the air. And one of his big claims to fame is that he discovered South Park. But Doug is one of the biggest obsessive and knowledgeable music fans that I've ever met. He has a music blog. He's a lifelong music curator. And this story is the one that early on changed Doug's life and career forever. So the year is 1975. Doug was 15 years old, living with his sister and his divorced mom. And he has one of the most unforgettable music moments that any teenager will ever experience. And it's all thanks to his mom. So this is Bob Marley's sonic impact on a young Doug Herzog. So it's 1975. My folks were divorced. I was living with my mom. My mom was uh, into music and she started to become a big fan of R&B music. While she liked Motown, she really started to gravitate towards like the stack stuff. She loved Al Green, Otis Redding. She was a huge Aretha Franklin fan. Barry White. My mom had Isaac Hayes records. I'm sure she was the only white woman within 50 miles with a copy of Hot Buttered Soul. The first concerts I went to, my mom took me to see Al Green at Lincoln Center, New York. We went to see um, Ray Charles and Gladys Knight and the Pips at the Nanuet Theater Go-Round. You remember those old theater in the round things? It's turning stage. You're a white kid from Addis, New Jersey. And your whole life is now filled with soul. When I was going to public school through seventh grade, Patterson was changing dramatically. And my class was probably at that point, 50-50, white, black, or white, black, and, you know, Hispanic. And, and by the way, on the radio, you know, they played everything. I liked not only R&B, but the funk thing started. And the kids I was hanging out with were listening to Cool and the Gang and Earth, Wind, and Fire. I loved that stuff as well. My point is you had some soul as a young kid before your story happened. Like you were already getting into black music. Yeah, look, like I said, we were going to, my mom took us to sit-ins, protests, benefits, a lot of black music and black theater and black dance and that kind of stuff. So now we've set the stage, you're 15 years old. Your mom is now doing events. 
And she gets an opportunity. Tell us that. It's- yeah. So my mom at this point started trying to name it, be the travel agent. And she gets this call out of the blue from a friend. Hey, can you help us get Stevie Wonder's band from LA to Jamaica, his lights from Miami to Jamaica, and his sound system from Detroit to Jamaica? Literally, I think it was like in 10 days. So that he can play this benefit concert um, in Kingston, Jamaica. And, you know, my mom never wanted to turn down a opportunity or a sexy opportunity like that says yes. In exchange, she said, um, I want airfare for me and my two kids and, you know, hotels and we get to go to the thing. And they were like, okay. So she tells my sister and I that we're going to go see Stevie Wonder in Kingston, Jamaica. So this is 1975. So this is after, you know, Stevie had this incredible run of albums, talking book, intervisions, fulfilling his first finale. And then of course, songs that came life. Stevie was obviously huge. And we were out of our minds excited that we were going to be able to do this. And then she starts telling us like, oh, it's going to be this event and it's going to be these other bands and these reggae bands. And I remember she got some of these promotional materials. It talked about it was going to be Stevie Wonder and Bob Marley. And I, I'm sure I, you know, had heard of Bob Marley and I, you know, I shot the sheriff that had already been a hit for Eric Clapton, but it was, certainly wasn't big on my radar. And I remember as part of the promotional materials, this a program came. I remember reading about Bob Marley and I was like, hmm, sounds interesting. I wonder what it's all about. He looked like somebody I'd never seen before with the dreadlocks and the whole thing. So we're thrilled. Um, so we jump on the plane, we go to Jamaica. A great side note is we befriended this guy in Stevie's band that we met around the hotel, a guy named Greg Fillingaines, who was all of 17, who had just joined Wonder Love straight out of high school in Detroit. I'm still in touch with him to this day. He's played with Jacksons. Uh, so we befriended him and he got us into a rehearsal the night before. We're from Patterson, New Jersey. We had never been anywhere near anything showbiz. And it was just, we were vibrating. You know, we were so excited. And then the next night we go to Kingston National Stadium. This is the biggest stadium in Jamaica. And uh, it's packed. We have uh, literally front row seats. We are right in front of the stage. I'm sitting next to Dick Gregory famous comedian and, and activist. And then all of a sudden, Bob Marley and the Whalers and the band came out from the back of the stadium with a couple of guys playing what they call Nyabingi drums, which are the sort of these Rastafarian hand drums, doing a song that's actually on one of the Whalers' first albums called the Rastaman Chant. And I remember thinking, what is this? And then they all amble on stage, um, including at the time, which was, you know, sort of lost on me, Bunny Whaler and Peter Tosh. As it turned out, this was the final time the three of them ever performed together. Uh, but Bob Marley took center stage, dreadlocks flowing, denim. And I think this is what your podcast all about. It was that moment where the music just hits you. You feel it. You get it. You want more of it. And it's like a lightning bolt. You never had heard reggae up to this point. So is this the moment? Like, it's hearing it lives different. Um, yeah, I'm assuming what I heard prior to that was Eric Clapton's version of I Shot the Sheriff, whether it was the Beatles doing Oh Blah Dee, Oh Blah Da. But no, this is the first time I heard actual reggae music. You know, so the whole thing, like this guy with this crazy sort of outlaw vibe and the hair singing about rebellion and marijuana and kind of peace and love. I don't know, just the whole thing just hit me. And, and along with sort of what they were singing about, the actual music and the rhythm was something that, you know, it struck me and I literally could feel it and I have been feeling it ever since. 
And I was just kind of mesmerized. It was a really exciting performance, you know, with the hometown crowd going batshit. And the thing I actually remember most vividly, Bob argued some of his songs, but they also did a bunch of the Whalers tunes. And both Bunny and Peter did some solo turns and Peter sang Legalize It, which was his huge hit. But as a 15, 16-year-old kid, I would send it with my mother. But, you know, this guy's singing about legalizing pot. And I'm like, oh, I'm so into this. <laughs> I remember, you know, the waft of marijuana just very present, which, but to be in a place with your mom and just like it, the whole place smells like pot was cool and unnerving. Um, What's your mother doing? Is your mother as into this as you? She loved the music. You know, I don't know how much of the message she appreciated, but certainly loved the music. And, you know, I just, I left there, you know, just kind of supercharged, ecstatic. We uh, were at the airport the next morning. I picked up a copy of Bob Marley's current album, which was the Nanny Dread album. Went back to my home in New Jersey and just played it incessantly. Made all my friends listen to it. I was hooked. I have remained not only a Bob Marley fan, but a reggae fan and kind of a collector and aficionado, you know, since 1975. Did you ever run into any of these folks later in life and like tell them how that moment hit you? I met uh, Ziggy Marley a couple times. So I got to tell him, look, I'm sure he hears this every day. And when I mentioned the concert, he like, wait, you were, you were at that concert? Because you know, everybody says got to see Bobby. But, you know, there are not a ton of people in the States who are at that concert. And so it really got his attention. And we, he asked me a couple questions about it. We chatted about it. And he always remembered me whenever I run into him. Were there albums available at that time in the U.S.? So there wasn't a lot, right? So, you know, Bob was on Island Records, which was, you know, the closest thing to a major label for reggae. And, you know, then I started, like, reading everything and looking for stuff. I started paying close attention to... Every time Rolling Stone would mention Bob or reggae, I actually have a copy of a High Times magazine from 1976 with Bob Marley on the cover, like a whole guide to buying reggae, which proved as a early direction for me. And then my mom ultimately, she had a big West Indian group of friends. They brought me a bunch of um, Jamaican singles, Jamaican 45s, you know, again, which were like, Something like I had never seen. You know, they're printed poorly. Some of them are handwritten. And I immediately became mesmerized by those. And I dragged my friends into Manhattan on the weekends. You know, we'd go see uh, The Heart of They Come at a midnight showing at the Elgin Theater. What I love about this era for all of us, there was no internet. There was no way to access information and a lot of music too. And that you felt like you had like discovered something that was so... <laughs> Special. You know, I mean, like I always loved like being that person to discover something, right? That's certainly a part of it, but you know, it wasn't just about being the first to tell you. I just, I really loved it. I used to wear like a badge. The lyrics about social injustice obviously made a lot of sense to me, uh, particularly coming from a house where, you know, the civil rights issue was important. And I loved the rhythms. I loved the, you know, the fact you could dance. I just loved the whole thing. If you think like deeper, why do you think this music, this movement spoke to you, this white kid from Jersey in such a profound way. This moment really hit you. It was a combination of both the music and the message. I mean, the, the rhythms, which I think took people a lot of time to sort of understand and, and get, I literally just took to it immediately. I just understood the rhythm and the beat intuitively from the start. 
And then the message, everybody's looking for their own North Star, particularly I think at that age. And while it was from a place very far away, talking about a lot of things that quite frankly, at the time I wasn't sure I understood, I did understand the basic intent. And Bob Marley's hit music and the way he put in lyrics was certainly easily digestible. And like I said, the whole package just kind of appealed to me. It must have also been seeing Bob Marley and the Whalers live in person up close and in Jamaica. Well, all of that, you know, I mean, all, all that counts. But you, know, you have to remember, you know, if you told somebody you saw Bob Marley in, in Jamaica in 1975, most people didn't care. Like, like, who is that? What are you talking about? You know, they, by my phone, you saw Stevie Wonder. Oh, that's cool. But Bob Marley, people like, what? You know, I remember my one friend describing it as roller rink music. And it certainly wasn't for everybody. I'm sure Stevie was great, too. He was amazing. And Marley, you know, ultimately came out before with him. And, and, and everybody went really crazy. Here's the thing. The story doesn't end here. After you have this moment, this changes your life in a, such a major way that you then go on to start a radio show, a reggae radio show. I think the first of its kind in the country, but you tell me. Certainly wasn't the first kind in the country, but it was an early one. I went to Everson College in Boston. I convinced the guys who were the program directors to let me host a reggae radio show. And I did that for a year on Saturday afternoons, and it became so popular that they moved the show from weekly to daily. And that show ran on WERS for like 35 years. But it was like a staple of Boston radio forever, which I have to say I was enormously proud of. Teenage moments that, you know, you have at that moment, then you move on in your life. But this has never left you, like, but it never went away. I considered myself like this reggae evangelist. You know, I would tell anybody who listened. I would try and convert anybody I could. My bookshelf, you know, back there is filled with reggae books. I've got hundreds of reggae CDs and hundreds of albums. Um, I still listen a great deal to this day. In fact, recently... Given what's going on with the world, I found a lot of the lyrics, particularly the ones about social justice, to be quite timely. I love that it was your mom that unknowingly took you on this adventure that was total fluke, getting tickets and airfare and all that to bring her kids, changed her life forever. She was the one that set you on this path, which is so great when, when your family members expose you to something and it changes your life. She did love music and we sort of stepped unknowingly into this. But then after I got hooked, God bless her, you know, I, I can remember going to a Jimmy Cliff concert with her at one point. You know, mom was certainly cool. And as a divorced mom, probably trying a little harder to be the cool mom. You know, music was a place we connected. I do have to kind of chalk it up to her without her adventurous sort of spirit. I'm not sure I would have been necessarily led there. Could have been just been a life of the Olman Brothers and the Jay Giles band for me, uh, who I love also. You know, all these years later, just to still be able to talk about it passionately, I think says something. I've taken it with me and stuck with me. And I, I can point to many things about the whole experience that defined a lot of who I am and where I went, what I did. How would you sum up how this moment changed your life? If you hadn't been at that concert, I wonder if you had, would have ended up doing what you did in your life and your career. Do you think there's any kind of a line at that moment? I loved music and I was just turned on by the whole experience. But it was definitely a catalyst. Was it, was it the moment? No, it was more like the moment where I fell in love with reggae. Through that experience, I got like this, like I said, my first sort of backstage peak. And that seemed really exciting to me. Yeah. Uh, Maybe yeah. I have a live aid many years later, like the greatest live moment ever. Yeah, I did know I loved music and I did sense like, wow, it's cool being backstage. Like, that's fun. But I knew I wanted 
this, to be around this stuff. And I just kind of kept on always moving, you know, try to move towards it after that. It was like a North Star. It's like, I want to go there. And I figured out if I got, you know, once I got there, I'd try and figure it out. Just hearing the joy and the childhood passion that this set you on a course in your life. And it's great to hear this story. I really enjoyed talking to it. I appreciate it. No worries. Appreciate being here and good luck with the, the podcast. All right. We'll talk to you soon. Wow. That story just blows me away. I mean, first of all, Olivia, his mom is the reason that he gets to experience this. Says, I'll only do it if I can take my kids, which is just such a cool thing for a parent to do for a kid. Not all parents would do that. I honestly can't even imagine because I've had a few moments where you see a live artist for the first time and the music just hits so much more than it would listening to the album in your room for the first time. But I feel like all of those experiences that I've had like that, it hasn't been like a completely new genre from a completely different country that I now have as just a teenager to bring back to my home country. I mean, can you imagine, Olivia, you're, you're 15 years old, you're in Jamaica, where reggae is everything. Bob Marley is the biggest you know, reggae star. And you go to this concert, you've never been to a real industry event. The feeling that must have had on him, and obviously to then come back to the States and sort of become an evangelist for reggae music, starting a radio show at your school. The other thing is now we have the internet, we have clips, YouTube. At that point, nobody had information. So, you know, we didn't see concerts online. You had to be there. So when you're 15, this is one of his first concerts he's ever been to. And Bob Marley comes out with the Rastamon and the pot smell. He's with his mother. Can we just give props to Mama Herzog for doing this and saying, I need tickets for my kids? And then what I love is, I would argue that if you are immersed in something like that at that age and has such a big influence and impact on you musically, the event. And then you go on to be sort of a key producer at MTV for live events and programming. I have to think that this moment he caught the bug and said, I want to do something like this. So that's a pretty amazing thing that not every story we do, that it changes the trajectory of their life. Yeah, that's definitely rare. I think it would be nice if we could all pinpoint times in our lives that were like, life-changing moments that made our lives go in different directions. I feel like that's usually not the case. That's like a movie. And it's so cool that he had this experience. So did you know much about Bob Marley? I mean, did you know his music? Did you know his story at all? I think I know the name. I know the few popular songs. I know the colors and the legalization of pot. Olivia, what did you find out about this concert So this was actually a very famous concert. It was called the Wonder Dream Concert, which I love. I think that's such a cool name. And it was at the Kingston National Stadium, which is one of the biggest stadiums in Jamaica. Today, there's actually a statue of Bob Marley there. And I'm pretty sure that the concert was a benefit concert for the Jamaican Institute for the Blind, which is a whole other layer that makes it even cooler. The other thing is he died a few years later. Bob Marley was only 36 when he died of cancer, which is devastating, and I had no idea. You also found out about the assassination attempt on his life. So it was 1976, and he was rehearsing with his band, and a group of gunmen attacked them. He and his wife both got shot, and they were not too seriously injured. But I think the assassination must have been a response to the political statements that he made in his music. 
his album in 1975 called Natty Dread is actually um, very politically charged and reflects a lot of the political tensions in Jamaica at the time. What's so cool about what Doug did, I think, is when Doug brings reggae back to the States, he's sort of like importing it. And so Doug became one of the key people in the country to expose people to reggae music in this radio show at Emerson. And so the impact this moment had on Doug was more than just an amazing concert, an amazing moment in his life. It really may have helped reggae music become sort of what it is today in our country. And I think especially at the time, people find out about things through word of mouth. The most common way to find a new movie or a new book is someone you know is like, hey, check this out because you trust their recommendations. So I must have been super powerful. One thing people don't know, he got to be at every major music event. He was actually a producer on Live Aid. He was on the stage at Live Aid in 1985. So that the impact that this moment had of being at a big concert also probably had some effect on him. So just quickly before we head out, I, I always like to get the guest key songs from the artist. And so here's Doug Herzog's top five Bob Marley songs that he thinks everyone should listen to. So it's Natty Dread, No Woman, No Cry, Get Up, Stand Up, Duppy Conqueror, Pass It On. So on our website, we will have a playlist for the songs that we talked about in the episode, as well as Doug Herzog's key Sonic Impact songs. Olivia, this has been a great episode. I've thoroughly enjoyed talking about Bob Marley with you. Any last thoughts? It's so awesome to be able to tell people's stories and learn about music at the same time. I honestly really didn't know very much about Bob Marley at all. So, and now I do. So it's awesome. Well, we hope you've enjoyed this episode of Sonic Impact with Bob Marley and our guest, Doug Herzog. We want to thank Doug for coming on and sharing this incredible life moment and its impact on him. And if you want to check out some of these songs, go to our website. Also, we hope you'll tune in for other episodes coming up. We have great stories with Van Halen, U2, Keith Richards, and many, many more. Also, Olivia and I will give you our Sonic Impact stories. So hope you join us next time on Sonic Impact. Olivia, thanks for being a great co-host, and we'll see you soon. Bye, Dad. See you next time. Sonic Impact is a production of Sonic Impact Media. The podcast is produced, edited, and hosted by Elliot and Olivia Goldberg. The show is mixed and mastered by Justin Longerbeam. Music provided by Fundamental Music. Artwork designed by Keanu Narsico and Dan Hodgen. Hey guys, it's Miriam Love here, and I want to share something very special with you. Check out my new release, All In, the Spanish remixes, out now on Electric Cast Records. And always remember, be love, share love, all love. Available now wherever you listen to music. Today is working for me. Do you believe that for yourself? Hey, I'm Pastor Julie, and I want to empower you through encouragement, inviting you to my podcast, Big Truth Encouragement, where I unpack living a faith-filled life. 
I created my podcast for the ladies, but gentlemen, you'll gain something too. So I invite you to listen to Big Truth Encouragement on Electricast and any platform where you listen to your podcast. Electricast. Electricast.